I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, uh, the Green Recovery event at the Center for American Progress. Uh, I'm Joseph Rome, Senior Fellow and Editor of the blog climateprogress.org, uh, and I am addicted to oil, uh, like everyone else in this room, but recovery is possible, uh, green recovery. As President-elect Obama said, our pattern has been that we go from shock to trance, and as a consequence, we never make any progress. It's part of the addiction, all right, that has to be broken. Now is the time to break it. The International Energy Agency warns that oil prices will rebound to $100 when the economy recovers, then soar to $200 by 2030, at which time the world will begin a, quote, permanent oil crunch that will make the recent squeeze look like a picnic. And that is the good news. The bad news is that existing global oil fields are declining so fast that the EIA says we need to find six new Saudi Arabias to hold off the peak in oil just to 2030. Uh, but six supergiant sources of energy don't exist underground. Fortunately, America is a Saudi Arabia of wasted energy. And the $115 billion green recovery plan spelled out by the Center for American Progress can jumpstart the effort to make our homes, buildings, farms, power plants, factories, and most especially our cars and trucks more efficient and less polluting. The time to break our addiction to oil is now, or we'll see $200 oil and $5 gasoline within a decade. And our addiction to oil isn't even our biggest problem. Our addiction to oil and coal is. On our current path of unrestricted greenhouse gas emissions, the planet will warm 10 degrees Fahrenheit and sea levels will rise three to six feet by the end of the century. The southwest will turn to desert from Texas to California, and the oceans will become one large, hot, acidic dead zone. To prevent those tragedies, we must, as Barack Obama has said, replace our entire energy system by mid-century. Starting very soon, the entire world will be spending $1 trillion to $2 trillion on energy efficiency and clean energy every year for the rest of the century. We must restore America's leadership in green technology because that is where the jobs are. The green recovery will create, will create millions of jobs while starting to break our oil addiction and slow global warming. Barack Obama recently said the science is beyond dispute. Delay is no longer an option. Denial is no longer an acceptable response. Obama makes it easy to be smart and eloquent. You just have to quote him. And speaking of smart and eloquent, we are fortunate to have three of the best on this subject, Carol Browner, Governor Ed Rendell, and Tom Friedman, who will sign books at the end of this. So please do stick around for the whole thing. Uh, Carol Browner served as EPA administrator for eight years, longer than any other in EPA history. She is playing a senior role in advising the Obama transition, but is not speaking in that capacity here today. She is on the board of the Center for American Progress and has played a key role in shaping this organization, reminding us always that the environment and global warming are first-tier issues. She's a key reason the center has been a leader on issues of clean energy and green recovery. It is gr my great pleasure to introduce Carol Browner. So Tom is suggesting if you'd like to come sit on the floor, there's room up here for those of you who are standing in the back. So, there we go. 
Good afternoon, and um, let me thank you all uh, for, for joining us um, here today. And uh, a special thanks to those of you who are actually um, standing. We, we appreciate um, the large audiences. As Joe mentioned, um, I am on the board and have been on the board of the Center for American Progress uh, since its inception. And there are any number of wonderful things that the center does, but among them are these sorts of forums where we open it up to the public, we open it up to the media, and uh, we take some time first to hear from our presenters and then to uh, answer questions um, that people uh, may have. One of the other great things about the center are the reports uh, that we are constantly producing and making available. And I think there are some of them in the back, but two that I specifically want to recommend uh, to those of you who join us here today. Uh, one is the one-year $350 billion plan for stimulus and recovery, and the other is a strategy for green uh, recovery. Um, I think the, uh, much of the conversation in town in Washington these days is, in fact, about a stimulus. And I think uh, both of these uh, provide lots of uh, interesting ideas and, and thoughts about uh, what we can do, what the Congress can do, and ultimately the President-elect can do in terms of uh, stimulating our economy. I want to thank uh, Joe for your introduction, and I also want to just uh, thank you for all of the work you do. If you've never been uh, to the blog that he oversees, I highly recommend it, uh, climateprogress.org. Uh, uh, it's really full of very, very timely and very valuable um, information, and uh, we thank you for joining us here today. Uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to make some quick introductions of people who really don't need a lot of introduction. Uh, we're then going to hear uh, briefly from each of them, and then, as I said, we will open it up uh, for questions um, uh, from you all and, and answers from our participants. Uh, let me start by introducing the governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell. Uh, he is currently serving his second term as governor of Pennsylvania after winning a landslide reelection in 2006. Uh, he has been at the forefront of energy issues uh, throughout his tenure as governor. Uh, there's a long list of things that you have done, but uh, the one that I think is, is, is uh, most noteworthy is the um, $650 million alternative energy investment fund uh, that you uh, recently um, set up. Uh, and the fact that you've made that kind of commitment that you all are going to be making those sorts of investments, I think, is very, very important. He is also serves as the head of the National Governors Association. And I think it's actually in town today because of an NGA uh, meeting. Uh, prior to uh, being governor, uh, some of you uh, may have known him as the mayor of Philadelphia. I first had uh, the honor of getting to know Governor Rendell when he served as the chair of the Democratic uh, party. So we welcome you here today and we, we thank you for joining us. Uh, next, let me introduce Tom Friedman, um, the columnist, New York Times author, um, Hot, Flat, and Crowded. You know, I don't know what my morning coffee would be like without Tom's uh, column uh, to read. And on the mornings, it's not there. It, it just doesn't seem um, right. Um, as you heard, he will be signing books um, at the end of uh, this session. And I recommend to all of you who haven't had a chance uh, to read his most recent book, I, I recommend it to you. I think it is um, one of the, the, the best I've ever seen on sort of the state of the world and what it is we need to do. I think you've called for a green recovery, a green president, green leadership. And I think it's fair to say, uh, Tom, that you have been at the forefront of, of green leadership, and we thank you uh, for joining us here today. And so with that, Governor Rendell, we will start with you.
Good afternoon, or yeah, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. At one time during the last couple of years, I envisioned this as the last place on earth that would be safe, but uh, thanks to the uh, wisdom of the electorate, that's not so. But it's a pleasure to be back anyway. And um, th this has been an ongoing battle, and I, as Carol said, thanks to Tom Friedman, we've gotten a, a real push in the in the last couple of years. But it's been an ongoing battle uh, to get America and the American government to concentrate on renewable energy and alternative sources of energy as the key to our future. You know, when I go around Pennsylvania, where I was talking about the things that we wanted to adopt and get the legislature to adopt, I would tell the uh, citizens of Pennsylvania, if I had one idea that could be a tremendous boost to our economy, number one, number two, would improve our environment, Number three would make us better able to withstand natural disasters like the incredible price spike that happened in Pennsylvania and throughout the country post-Katrina. And number four would help us in foreign affairs so that the United States of America would never have to make a decision of placing Americans in the line of fire because of our need for energy. Would, do you think that would be a good idea? And obviously the answer was a resounding yes. Uh, and that is, there is one thing that can do all of those things, and it's developing a green energy economy, developing uh, a green country, uh, using renewable alternative sources uh, to replace the fuels that we rely on today. And I don't believe it is a difficult challenge. I believe this is a question of will, both political will of the Congress and the President, and the will of the American people. Uh, it goes both ways, and uh, I was glad to hear uh, President-elect Obama on uh, 60 Minutes make the same point you made, Carol, about how the Arabs play this game whenever there seems to be a movement towards uh, renewables and alternatives. They drop the price of oil and try to lull us back to sleep, and the American people cannot be lulled back to sleep again. I think that's the job of not only the great uh, uh, columnists like Tom Friedman, but it's the job of elected officials. To, and particularly the president, to make sure that doesn't happen. And I think Americans are not going to be lulled back to sleep this time, regardless of the short-term bonanza that we're all realizing. Uh, back in 2004, after President Bush was uh, reelected, I wrote him a note and I said, I heard you talk about clean energy and specifically clean coal, and you ought to convene a Manhattan Project for this country. You ought to get moving. This can be a legacy of something great that you can do for the country, and it would be like Richard Nixon going to Red China, an oil man developing a renewable energy uh, economy for this country. And you ought to be able to do it. I never got a response. So I went down to the National Press Club in the following year and laid out my plan for a Manhattan Project, which I call the American Energy Harvest Program, Tom, I like your name a little bit better, but I call it the American Energy Harvest Program, and I laid it out hoping that this would get the White House's attention, and I never got a response. Um, fortunately, we started to get some interest in Capitol Hill, and in 2006, the Democratic senators put together a decent plan and advanced that decent plan. Well, we still, we've lost some valuable time, and we still need that plan, and it is my hope that the short-term economic recovery plan that President-elect Obama is fashioning, it will include some key components of what I think we need in renewable energy, but it can't 
stop there. We have to make this a major effort. We cannot get sticker shock. You know, Paul Krugman said about the New Deal, and it was a very interesting quote. I wrote it down. He said that FDR had the broad vision necessary, but that he got scared about essentially the price tag and didn't follow through on all the things needed to help the American economy. And as a result, for years after the Great Depression was was technically ended, American businesses and American families suffered. And we can't make that same mistake again. And we can't let the financial crisis that we're in deter us from doing the things we need to develop this new green energy economy. And fortunately, a lot of it doesn't require money. Um, I wrote down just five things that I think the federal government could do, and really only one of them requires money. Number one, they could make the tax credits for renewable energy permanent. Now, you may say to yourself, tax credits, nobody's making any money. Why would tax credits be important? Well, tax credits will be important someday, hopefully sooner than later. And without them, renewable energy cannot compete. There are so many, even before the bailout, uh, before the collapse happened, there's so many renewable energy companies that were on the cusp of going out of business because they couldn't get financing. And the major reason they couldn't get financing, despite all of the green tech that's out there, is the tax credits were always in doubt. We spoon feed those tax credits what we make tax credits for oil and gas exploration permanent. That could be done without costing the federal government a dime. Secondly, portfolio standards. Pennsylvania adopted advanced energy portfolio standards for our electricity back in 2004. At that time, we were the leading state east of the Mississippi in the production of wind energy with a paltry 153 megawatts. But we adopted these standards, which were 2019 standards. That was the time when the electric companies had to be uh, taking 20% of the, uh, the energy they sell us at retail. had to come from renewable and alternative sources, and we spelled it out. As soon as we passed that bill, our great then Secretary of DEP, uh, Katie McGinney, brought a uh, Spanish company into Pennsylvania, and I spent time with them. Gamesa, they were called the second largest uh, vertical wind energy company in the world. And Gamesa not only came to Pennsylvania, set up two manufacturing operations, ironically one in a closed down steel mill that had been closed for 15 years. Actually, some of the steel workers got jobs producing those huge 65-foot blades and the, the turbines, and produced 1,100 new jobs for us. But even more important, signed up contracts to produce 1,400 megawatts of wind energy. We increased our wind energy tenfold in less than six months after passing portfolio standards. We believe we can produce over 5,000 megawatts of wind energy from Pennsylvania, particularly if we do good work on the grid and make the grid go to all parts of Pennsylvania. We think we can go do between 5,000 and maybe 6,000 megawatts, which would take care of producing energy for two-thirds of Pennsylvania's houses two-thirds of the houses of the sixth largest state in the Union. That's pretty impressive. But in addition to energy portfolio standards, electricity portfolio standards, we went further and adopted something that uh, we call by a fancy name, but it's essentially fuel portfolio standards. We said when the distribution network reaches a certain point, one billion gallons of gasoline sold at the pump in Pennsylvania have to come from non-fossil fuels, and that could be uh, diesel fuel, it could, I mean, uh, uh, biofuels, it could be ethanol, it could be any new invention that comes in and fits that uh, 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 definition. Um, 
we think the distribution system can reach that certainly for biofuels probably by 2012 and for ethanol depending on how fast we develop cellulosic ethanol and we have three pilot projects underway um, we think we can do it for ethanol by 2015 one billion of the 11 billion gallons that we sell at the pump and what are we doing here we're obviously using portfolio standards to create the market to create the market that will spur investment in these type of, uh, uh, of energy companies. Um, I also think uh, the federal government should become an off-taker. Uh, Pennsylvania became an off-taker to several renewable energy and alternative energy projects and helped them get financed. Think about the fact if the federal government took all of its fleet, all of its fleet with the possible exception of some multi-terrain vehicles, took all of its fleet and said we're only buying electric cars or we're only buying hybrids. That would produce a mass market which would drive the price down for ordinary consumers. I think that, I forget the exact, I used to know the exact number of cars the federal government buys. Carol, do you know? It's a huge number of cars and trucks. And it, just by becoming an off-taker, we create the marketplace to make this done. Uh, next, federal investment. And there has to be investment. Just as Carol said, Pennsylvania has a $650 million fund to not only, and this fund can be used for early stage venture, for, I mean, there's a company in Jefferson Medical Center, one of the best hospitals and medical centers in America, is working on a project to take a portion of the tobacco leaf and turn it into fuel. And we have given them a million dollars a year over the last two years to help in the research of that technology. So some of that money is going to go to early stage, some of it's going to go for infrastructure that companies are, are ready to go, ready to roll. And, and just needed additional money to get, to get started. California has $3 billion in a fund, Iowa over $1 billion, Pennsylvania six fifty, Massachusetts pretty close to us. The states have done it. Can you imagine if we do what President-elect Obama proposed in the campaign and put $15 billion a year into a fund to promote the development of renewable and alternative energy, bingo. And lastly, I'm gonna say something that you all probably aren't gonna like but you got to live with it. Uh, no matter how fast, and Boone Pickens has alerted us to this, no matter how fast we transfer our energy production to renewables and alternatives, it's going to be a while before we can take most of our electricity and have it produced by renewables and alternatives. It's going to be a while, if ever. We can certainly do a significant chunk of it, maybe by as early as 2020, but it's going to be a while. So we can't turn our back on coal, but we also can't produce any more coal-burning power plants. That would be a disaster. Carol used the term that we're the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy, and that's true. God, just all of the landfills in America, and we're producing energy from landfill gases and uh, methane from coal. There, there's so many things. But the big mother load, the big mother load is still coal. We are truly the Saudi Arabia of coal. You don't like burning coal because it produces so much harmful carbon emissions no matter how much money we spend on scrubbing and scrubbing techniques. But if we could find a way to capture carbon during the production of coal energy and sequester carbon, and I know that's a big if, but if we could, it would unlock an energy source for this country that's ours, that comes from the ground, that produces literally millions of jobs across the length and breadth of America. Coal goes from Pennsylvania to West Virginia to Ohio to Illinois to Wyoming to Montana, 
all across this country, and we could truly become energy independent. Now, is that a stretch? Well, I've heard a lot of people smarter than I say that we ought to be able to do that, that the scientists of this world and the research in this world ought to be able to do that. And interestingly, the federal government under the Bush administration took a step towards doing that in a project called FutureGen. FutureGen was a competitive project, and the state of Illinois actually won the grant. So Senator Obama knows a lot about this. Uh, and then the Bush administration canceled FutureGen for monetary reasons. We ought to be pouring money into the exploration of whether we can use coal as an energy source in a clean way. Capturing carbon and, and finding a way to successfully sequester carbon has to be part of what we look at. Maybe we won't get there, but it has to be part. The last thing I want to say uh, is something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's infrastructure. And obviously, infrastructure is going to be a big part of the economic development and recovery. But as we are promoting rebuilding this nation's infrastructure, we have to be sensitive to doing infrastructure in a way that helps us become greener. And we can do it. Infrastructure and, and, a, and, and, and a green America are not mutually exclusive, are not mutually exclusive. One of the most effective commercials I have ever seen on TV um, is the uh, commercial that's run by the Rail Freight Association where they say for one gallon of gas, they can move uh, one ton of uh, freight 400 miles for one gallon of gas. Think about that. And yet we have 52,000 miles of freight lines that are in disrepair and can't support high-speed freight trains, high-speed heavy load freight trains. It would cost an estimate of $150 billion to make this nation's freight capacity uh, to where it should be, to move freight quickly and to move heavy loads at one time. What that would do for our economy is tremendous, for our economic competitiveness, because how fast and how quickly you can move goods is going to be one of the things that determines uh, the strength of our economy. And think of what that would do for the environment. Just a simple thing like that. Of course, mass transit and light rail and then inner city rail would be a bonanza for our environment, for controlling carbon emissions for making this a green country. We're the only developed nation in the world that doesn't have a city-to-city high-speed rail system. It's a disgrace. In Europe, you can't get a flight that's under 500 miles because you're expected to take the train. And we should be here, too. We should take that shuttle and put it out of business. Put it out of business. We have on the Amtrak line, the Acela, if, if we had the right type of track bed and electrification, for the Acela. You could make New York to Washington in an hour and 35 minutes. Anybody here want to take the shuttle after that? Of course not. And getting rid of the shuttle is a bonanza for LaGuardia, Newark, Philadelphia, BWI. It relieves so much airport congestion. There's so many things that we can do with our infrastructure in the future to help build this green economy and green America. We can't forget that in the rush to have infrastructure. First of all, we should fix it rather than build it new. The only time we should build new roads or bridges is when there's an absolute imperative. We ought to be fixing what we have first, and that, that's crucial. We ought to spend money on our water and wastewater systems because that's essential to the, to the environment, to our economy, and to a green America. So as we're putting the emphasis on renewable energy and building the green economy, 
we're going to be, I think, on parallel tracks rebuilding our nation's infrastructure. And I hope not just in the economic recovery plan, I hope in a, in a long, long-term plan that's financed by federal capital budgeting. And if we do that, it's very, very important that who's ever responsible for doing that does it in an environmentally sound and safe way. I think uh, the Congress understands that. I think Senator Boxer will have a lot to say about that, and I think she is very keenly aware of that challenge. But those are the challenges that are facing us, and the federal government can do this. You know, uh, I believe, as you heard, a lot of campaign rhetoric that America can do anything it sets its mind to. I believe that's correct, and I believe it starts with leadership. It starts getting the buy-in from the American people. I think we can do it. Let me close by telling you uh, I am not a Parade magazine reader. I say that as a disclaimer, but um, not that there's anything wrong with people who read Parade magazine. But I don't know if you noticed this weekend, Parade took a uh, poll, and the question was, do you think, which would you rather have, uh, money spent on rebuilding our roads and bridges, not building new ones, on rebuilding our roads and bridges, or a tax rebate check as part of the federal bailout? And by two to one, 66 to 33 percent, Americans said, spend the money on rebuilding roads and bridges. So there is hope. And we've got to keep it going. And we can't lose the moment. We can't get sticker shock. We can't, we can't do this in a small way. We have to do it in a big way. And fortunately, I believe we have a president-elect who's ready to lead, ready to do big things, and ready to do great things to reach these goals. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a treat to be here. Uh, Center for American Progress, I think, has been um, uh, one of the great uh, organizations in Washington bringing together both the science and the policy around these issues. Um, uh, Joe, thank you for having me. Joe, Joe was uh, one of my readers and tutors for my book, so it's great to, to be able to uh, repay the favor a little bit. And um, any Washington, D.C. that's going to have Ed Rendell and Carol Browner in key policy positions is a city I'm excited to be living in. So I think we're, we're starting into uh, to a new year, and I'm excited about it. Um, let me take uh, just 10 minutes um, to uh, try to give you a sense of where I'm coming from, because uh, I'm, I'm new, uh, reasonably new, uh, that is five years ago, I would say, to the energy environment story. And for me, um, although my book is about energy and environment, um, it's really not. It's, uh, that's an allegory. Um, uh, the book is really about America. Um, and the book is, uh, uh, grew out of a deep sense uh, of my own that uh, we've lost our groove as a country uh, somewhere along the way, and we need to get our groove back. And uh, for me, energy and environment was really the vehicle to do that. Um, it's the vehicle around which I organize um, my own thinking about what I think we need most, which is nation building at home right now. Um, and so that's really where, where I'm coming from. I've, I've been on book tour for the last three months, it seems, every day. And um, one of the things that struck me, and I've been all over this country to universities, big towns, small towns, is um, every night I come back to my hotel and my uh, pockets are full of business cards. Uh, rock stars get room keys, I get business cards. And, um, uh, and they're business cards from uh, energy innovators. Um, uh, and it's quite amazing when you go around this country uh, the number of people doing stuff. Um, I got a wind project. I got a cellulosic project. I've got a, a solar project. I got a duck. It paddles a wheel, blows up a balloon, issues methane, turns a turbine. I hear the craziest stuff, okay? Um, this country is exploding with innovation from the ground up. 
the problem is that we have not had in Washington a government that is enabling, empowering, and nurturing that innovation at the speed, scope, and scale that we need. Uh, which is why I've been saying that if I could draw a picture of America today, the picture would be of the space shuttle taking off. You've all seen the space shuttle take off, all this incredible thrust coming from below. And that's that incredible on entrepreneurial and innovative prowess that is still out there. But the booster rocket, Washington, D.C., has been cracked and leaking energy. And the pilots in the cockpit have been fighting over the flight plan. And as a result, we as a society have not been able to achieve escape velocity to get into the next orbit. And the next orbit to me is a revolution I call ET, the energy technology revolution, which I think is critical for the climate, critical for energy, and I think the source of nation building in America. Now, my simple argument is that the world's getting hot, flat, and crowded. Hot refers to global warming. I don't need to go into that here. Crowded refers to the fact that uh, I was born in 1953. You go to Google, you can put in your birthday now, find out how many people were born the year uh, on the earth the year you were born. I was born July 20, 1953. Google tells me there were 2.681 billion people on the planet the year I was born. There's 6.2 billion today. If I go to the UN population chart, go out to 2053, if I keep working out, eating yogurt, and live to be 100, um, it tells me there will be 9.2 billion people on the planet. That means in my lifetime alone, the population of this planet will have more than tripled, and more people will be born between now and when I die than were here when I was born. So the world's getting hot and crap. It's also getting flat. Flat for me is simply a metaphor for the rise of middle classes all over the world, from Russia to Brazil, from India to China, who are producing and consuming like Americans. And so the world population is not only growing, but the much more relevant metric is the number of Americans people consuming and producing like Americans is growing even faster. And the energy and natural resource implications of that are enormous. My friend Tom Burke, who runs a wonderful NGO, environmental NGO in England called E2, uh, invented a metric which I like to quote. He calls it the Americum. And an Americum is any 300 million people living like Americans. Now, um, when I was born in 1953, there were two and a half Americums in the world. America, Western Europe, and Japan. Today, there are nine. There's an Americum in America. There's an Americum in Western Europe. There's an American come, uh, come in Eastern Europe and Russia. There's one in India giving birth to another, one in China giving birth to another, one in Japan and East Asia, one in South America. We've gone from a world of two and a half Americums, units of 300 million people living like Americans, to a world of nine Americums. Now, you put all those together, hot, flat, and crowded. What you get, I believe, are three separate flames that have converged into a raging fire. And this fire is driving five global trends that I think are going to define the 21st century, or I should say how we and whether we meet these challenges will define the 21st century. They are, first of all, energy and natural resource supply and demand. That's the demand for food and fuel and cement and steel, um, water, and uh, all forms of energy. It's going through the roof. Second is petro-dictatorship, the rise of the Irans, the Putins, the Ahmadinejads, the Chavezes, which are polluting and fundamentally transforming global geopolitics. Third is climate change. Uh, the fourth is um, something I call energy poverty, the 1.6 billion people around the world who have no on-off switch in their lives uh, because they are not connected to an electric grid. Let's not forget that one out of four people on the planet do not have regular grid electricity. And to be energy poor in a world that's hot, flat, and crowded, which means you will not have the energy to dig a deeper well when the hots get hotter, you will not have the energy to turn on a fan 
Um, uh, you will not have the energy, most importantly, to get to Google, which means you will not be able to connect to all the world's knowledge. In a world that's hot, flat, and crowded, being energy poor will be devastating. And the fifth megatrend is biodiversity loss, the fact that we are in the midst of a massive extinction of biodiversity akin to when the meteorite basically or asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs. According to Conservation International, one new species now goes extinct every 20 minutes. Now you put those five together, energy and natural resource supply and demand, petro dictatorship, climate change, biodiversity loss, and energy poverty. And there's two ways to look at that list. One way is to look at it the way I think a lot of us want to look at it or, or, or uh, lapse into looking at it, and that's to look at that list and say we're cooked. We're completely fried. We are toast. Let's party, okay? Um, <laughs> That's one way to look at that list. I look at it the way John Gardner looked at uh, a similar list, and he said that list, that list, that's a list of incredible opportunities masquerading as insoluble problems. That to me is what that list represents for America, a list of incredible opportunities masquerading as insoluble problems. Because what's really cool about that list, those five mega problems driven by hot, flat, and crowded, is that they all have the same solution. Now, how neat is that? They all have the same solution. Whoever can invent a source of abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons and molecules, whoever can invent a source through innovation, energy efficiency, and conservation of abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons and molecules will have the answer for energy and natural resource supply and demand. We'll be able to undermine petrodictatorship. We'll be able to mitigate climate change. We'll be able to eliminate energy poverty. We'll be able to dramatically ease biodiversity loss. That says to me one thing. If that's the list of the mega problems and they all have that single solution, I know one thing. The next great global industry has to be the search for abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons and molecules through the combination of innovation, energy efficiency, and conservation. And I am convinced that the country that gets there first or gets there most will have the most energy security, economic security, national security, competitive industries, clean environment, and global respect. That country has to be the United States of America. That country has to be the United States of America. If it is not the United States of America, the chance of our children having and enjoying the standard of living we have and enjoyed is zero. As my friend Jeff Immelt of GE says, I think very rightly, if you want to be big, you got to be big in big things. Or if you want to be big, you got to be big in big things. And if we want to be big as a country, we got to be big in big things. And there will be nothing bigger than ET, the search through innovation, energy efficiency, and conservation for abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons. So the method to my madness is very simple. Um, what I've been out to do, um, I'm not a climate scientist. I, I have great tutors like Joe who can lead me through that. I'm not an energy expert. I'm out really for one thing, to redefine green as I think a pathway and a tool to rebuild, renew, and energize America. That's what I'm about, okay? And um, we need to take green away from those who have, I believe, perverted and distorted um, uh, and exaggerated what it means. And we need to reclaim green. Because this is not just a source of electric power, friends. In a world that's hot, flat, and crowded, it will be a source of national power. 
Now, as many of you have heard me say, I, I'm a big believer that to name something is to own it. If you can name an issue, you can own the issue. Uh, the world is flat, okay? Well, the problem with green all these years is that the people who named it were actually its opponents. Yeah, they owned the definition. And they named it liberal, tree-hugging, sissy, girly man, unpatriotic, vaguely European. Vaguely European. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Gore, you're looking a little European. Well, I'm here to tell you that green is geopolitical, geostrategic, geoeconomic, capitalistic, patriotic. Green is the new red, white, and blue. And this argument I'm trying to make avowedly, openly, and unapologetically speaks out of both sides of its mouth. To Rush Limbaugh, I say, Rush, I got a plan to make America stronger. Oh, and by the way, as a byproduct, we'll take care of all those things Al Gore is worried about. And to Greens, I say, I have a plan to make America greener. Oh, and by the way, as a byproduct, we'll take care of all those things Dick Cheney is worried about. This is a source of environmental power and a source of national power. And unless you bring the two together, you will not have a coalition, a broad enough coalition to give you the speed, scope, and scale we need to lick this problem in the time frame we have. That's what I'm about. That's the method of my madness. And that's why green is the new red, white, and blue. Thank you very much. Well, let me um, start by thanking uh, both of you for those uh, very provocative and um, insightful comments. Um, I want to start with a question about political will. And I think, Tom, you, you talked about um, how we about engaging people and defining the issue. And I think that's, I, I couldn't agree uh, more with you. I mean, one of the things I tried to do when I was at EPA was, you know, say that EPA wasn't just about, you know, the tree huggers and the pretty places you visit on vacation. It's about where we live our lives and how we live our lives. And, and you know, that should be the focus of our work. But having said that, there still is this Congress up there. Um, and you know, the last time we debated um, cap and trade legislation, climate change legislation, we got to 48 votes, depending on sort of how you count things. Uh, we clearly didn't get to um, enough votes. And so, you know, we just, we're in the middle of a very difficult economic time. Uh, your state obviously is, is confronting it, um, as are many, many governors. Uh, we have uh, new economic numbers out today. I think new unemployment numbers out today. I presume they're worse than what we've already seen. We have Treasury spending $700 billion, and yet we are having a hard time understanding uh, to, what, to what quick uh, benefit that is occurring. And so uh, to both of you, how do we engage the Congress particularly on this issue of green, of new energy sources, of renewables, of climate change, you know, because um, I, I'm a very optimistic person, and it sounds like all of us are. I think we'll ultimately get this right, because I don't think we'll be the first generation to lead to another a world they cannot fix. But time is so of the essence. I mean, the scientists are telling us we do not have the luxury of time. We've wasted at least eight years, and that we've got to get going quickly. So how do we create the political will? And Governor, let me start with you. Well, when I would make that speech around the uh, state about what uh, we need to get done uh, and the four things that get solved by uh, renewable energy. Um, the biggest applause line was not having to buy oil from the Arabs. The biggest applause line of all. Better than a clean environment, 
better than even jobs and, and new economic growth, better than our ability to withstand natural disasters. That was the big applause line. And we should ride that baby because uh, in, in America, as I think it's true around the world, dislike and hate can be a stronger emotion than love. But the second best thing is jobs. And we have to translate, we have to translate for people quite clearly where those jobs are coming from. Because the American people, they, they want a, a, a clean environment. And they do sort of understand global warming. But when you tell them that global warming is going to be a disastrous problem 50 years down the road, they're worrying about what happens to, to, to can they make ends meet next month. And so those are the two issues that I think we, we coalesce around most of, of all. And that's the way to, to, to get the nat national consensus on this. And I think it comes from uh, presidential leadership. I, I really believe that. And that's why uh, this election was so important. This was an election that we couldn't afford to lose. The people who wanted to develop this uh, te energy technology revolution couldn't afford to lose. And the question for President Obama right now, and this is true in infrastructure too, is, and Tom ended on this, and interestingly, I ended on it. It has to be big. It has to be big. If we try to do this, if we pay lip service to it, if we try to do it in small increments, I, I don't think we're going to get there, or I don't think we're going to get there first, for sure. And I remember hearing Senator Obama say on the campaign trail, in the fall campaign, I didn't hear him say much in the spring campaign, but in the fall campaign, I remember hearing him say uh, that he wants to export he wants to export clean energy technology to China. He wants to send it to China. After us, you know, you know, doing things the other way, wants to send it to China. Well, it has to be big and bold. And big and bold is sometimes tough in a crisis, but sometimes a crisis lays the groundwork to be big and bold. So I, I think it really stems from there. Um, I'd say a couple things, Carol. One is that um, I think where you started on on uh, <clears throat> the climate issue is worth reminding people. My, one of, another of my really most cherished teachers, Rob Watson, the guy who invented lead buildings. You know, Rob likes to say that um, Mother Nature, she's just chemistry, biology, and physics. That's all she is. Uh, you can't spin her, you can't sweet talk her, can't tell her to slow down, can't tell her, sorry Mother Nature, we're having a recession now, maybe the biggest depression since 1929, could you take a break? Uh, she's just chemistry, biology, and physics, and she's gonna do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And Mother Nature always bats last, and she always bats a thousand. So she didn't take the last eight years off. So I think you know we, we do have to remind people that while the Bush administration took the last eight years off, in terms of fighting climate change, Mother Nature didn't. So we're in an even deeper hole than before. Um, where, where I kind of like to begin that conversation with the mythical you know uh, congressman uh, or woman on that issue is. Um, you know, by saying that we had a boom bubble and bust in this country on railroads in the 19th century. Everyone went out and bought railroad stocks. We had hundreds of railroads. Um, almost all of them went bust. Um, if you bought railroad stocks, they're now wallpaper on your wall. But um, the amazing thing about that bubble is that it left us with an incredible national railroad system that actually helped knit our country together. Um, we all know, many of us lived through it here in this room, we had a boom bubble and bust around dot-coms in the 20th century. Um, it, uh, we all went out and bought pets.com and groceries.com and most of us lost money, but that bubble left us with an incredible infrastructure of internet bandwidth on which Google and Microsoft really built uh, the internet 2.0 revolution. Well, we just had a, we, we haven't fully understood it at the time, but we now understand we've just been through a financial services boom bubble 
and now bus. And um, if we don't watch out, it's going to leave us with um, a bunch of half-built condos in Florida, uh, dead derivative contracts that nobody understands, and use Gulfstream jets. And the worst thing about this bubble is that we borrowed all the money for it from China. And as a result, if we don't, we are now charging this bailout on our kids' visa cards. That's where this money is coming from. We are charging it on our kids' visa cards, and we owe it to them to make sure we spend every dollar, every penny, wisely. And to me, the, that begins with making sure that whatever we do with this bailout, we are laying the foundation for another great export industry that will vault us and vault our country into the 21st century. You mentioned cars and the automobile. Did you mention cars? You mentioned trains. No, the portfolio standard. For oh, the fuel standard. Fuel standard. Yeah, when we, we, we look at our automotive industry, we look at the impact on our environment. Um, you know, cars are cars are a tough part of this puzzle. Um, what should we do? You know, let me. I just want to add one other thought too that Ed raised. I think is so important. I think you you both alluded to. And you cannot underestimate this. I, I covered the State Department for four years, and then I covered the presidency. And as a reporter, I really saw the difference between the bully pulpit of a secretary of state and the bully pulpit of a president. And it, it's really, it's remarkable. And you know, we've had a president who, for eight years, you know, couldn't get the word c -c 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 conservation out of his mouth. Okay. And um, now we are going to have a president who I think is going to talk about this openly and unabashedly every day. You can't imagine the difference that makes. Let's remember that tens of thousands of people went out and bought Sarah Palin Chinese designer glasses after the St. Paul Convention. So imagine what people will do if you had a president who actually rode his bike, who actually walked places, who actually said, I'm not going to have a presidential motorcade that doesn't have American-made plug-in electric vehicles in it. And I think the power of the bully pulpit will just be enormous. I, and I think we can't even begin to appreciate the educational value of that and, and how much we have to look into. I mean, think about it, Carol. Your predecessor, uh, uh, your successor, excuse me, at EPA for the last, uh, he's been in a witness protection program. I mean, does, uh, how many people in this country know, more people know your name as head of the EPA than could ever identify him on any Jeopardy show um, as head of the EPA? So um, to actually have a head of EPA who, who people knew, you know, in Europe, if you're, if you're like head of the EPA, you're, like one, you're, you're in line to be the next prime minister, you know. So, um, uh, and, and here we, we've had someone who has, it was basically diminished the bully pulpit. So as far as the auto companies go, you know, um, I'm so disgusted with these people and the people who run these companies. It, it's just hard for me to be uh, uh, un, uh, in, in any way rational about this. Um, I think the term bail more than bailout actually applies to how we should be thinking about them. But um, uh, the, the fact is they represent big companies and, um, uh, and they represent a lot of jobs. And so we cannot be glib about this. But God in heaven, if you're going to come here for a bailout, um, don't fly here on three separate private jets. Maybe come together on one private jet, you know what I mean? But uh, carpool, you know, um, as it were. But um, if you're going to come to Washington and ask for a bailout at this time, at least come with an aspirational message. Come to Washington and say, I have a plan. I have a plan to beat Toyota into the dust in five years. We are going to make the most fuel efficient, clean, 
great quality cars that every college student is want, gonna wanna buy. I have a dream, okay? Don't come to Washington and say, if you don't bail me out, I'm gonna bleed to death on your doorstep, okay? And that's basically what these people did. Governor, do you wanna follow? <laughs> no, just, just basically, uh, uh, there are things we can do. There are things we can do, and we can do them swiftly. As I said, buying power. If, every, if the federal government and every state in the union bought all of its cars, and whether they be electric car or hybrids, et cetera, think of the impact that makes on the industry and makes on the ordinary consumer. And as Tom says, it's right. You know, people see, you know, those cars around in abundance. All of a sudden, they get the idea. We have a, uh, uh, a fairly significant uh, 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 tax credit, a refundable tax credit, if you buy a hybrid vehicle in, in Pennsylvania. We should have a federal tax credit for doing that. Build the industry. Build the industry at the beginning, at the inception, and then it, it takes off. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. And of course, following up what Tom says, don't give those guys a dime unless you get commitments from them about how they're going to restructure and how they're going to be part of the new green economy. Don't give them a dime. We should have done that with the banks and the financial institutions. Why we didn't put conditions on, the, on those dollars, they're sitting there and there's no money going out into the economy. There should have been, in a condition, there should have been, just like with the economic recovery infrastructure portion, we're going to have a use it or lose it component to it. They should have had a use it or lose it, lend it or end it. How's that? Good. Good. We're going to take. Um, we're going to start now with a few questions from the press, and then we're going to open it up. Um, they're going to have to hand you microphones right behind you. Hi. Please identify yourself. Hi, Jeff Young. I work for a public radio program called Living on Earth, and uh, my question is actually for for you, Ms. Brown, our moderator. Um, looking ahead to the the next person who's going to be uh, in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency, what are the big challenges that person's going to face to? Uh, turn around the agency after what it's been through under the past three administrators in the past eight years? Sorry, there have been three. Um, well, the, the good news for, for the next administrator is there are a huge number, you know, 18,000, 17,000 people at EPA who come to work every day and they want to do their job. They are the finest of public servants and they are ready, I think, to, to do their job. As you know, the transition has people actually now in the departments. Every department, there's a team talking to people, understanding sort of what are the opportunities, what are some of the challenges that will be faced. There are some enormous challenges. Um, you know, I think that the last eight years was not just about inattention. It wasn't like they were just sort of not doing anything. They were actively looking at how to change the decision-making paradigm, to move it away from the historic, you know, protect the public's health, protect the public welfare, make it a cost-benefit analysis, you know, protect uh, wh whatever the different statutes are that EPA has responsibility for. They've managed to really change the fundamentals of virtually every single one of them. So re reasserting the agency's historical focus on protecting our air, our water, uh, the land that we live on, the communities where we raise our children uh, will be very, very important, but they will get to do it with some really phenomenal individuals. Ian Talley, Dow Jones News Wires. Uh, one for uh, Governor Rendell. Is this not your um, preparatory uh, acceptance speech uh, for uh, Secretary of Energy? 
Uh, is that a categorically no? Yeah, it's a categorical no. I, uh, first of all, I have this strange belief that when you run for office, it's an implied contract between you and the voters. Vote for me, and Lord willing, I'm going to be your governor for four years. That's number one. Number two, this is the worst financial time. Pennsylvania's had a good economy, uh, uh, in great part to some of the stimulus things we did in 03. This is the first challenge we've had, and to run out when the challenge is the greatest, uh, I wouldn't feel very good about. Thirdly, um, I had a lieutenant governor who was battling cancer, and she died very recently. And uh, under Pennsylvania law, the state senate president becomes lieutenant governor. And he's a good man, but he's a very conservative, no spend, no borrow, uh, right-wing Republican. And I couldn't leave the 19th largest economy in the world in his hands. So uh, if, if it's going to be for me, it'll be, if it's going to be for me, it'll be down the road. But there are some great people who could do this job. Uh, of course, I don't know if we'd get any, I don't know if we'd get anything done, but Brian Schweitzer would have the nation <laughs> laughing all the time if he was Secretary of Energy. You know, there are some, even among my fellow governors, there are people who could do the job equally as well and maybe better than I could. Well, and one of them today, Governor Napolitano. Well, of course, we took Governor Napolitano off the uh, off the roster for potential secretary of energy and she's now our homeland security secretary but there are plenty of governors who are on the cutting edge of this issue ironically in the last eight years the only cutting edge stuff is going on in the states is going on in the states so th there are other candidates this is the it's not a national emergency that i become secretary of energy just a policy question 2020 is the earliest that uh, many uh, ccs uh, carbon sequestration experts have said that they can uh, bring that technology commercially uh, forward uh, that's also approximate date for you know build the transition needed for you know the large renewables so what's the interim energy source that will uh, meet uh, the the growing demand is it conservation um, solely or, or no, what, natural it, gas? It's certainly conservation and efficiency. Natural gas can play a role in this. And by the way, I'm not ready to assume that carbon sequestration and carbon capture will take to 2020. When Jack Kennedy said we put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, a lot of people thought he was wildly optimistic, wildly optimistic. Uh, I'm not sure if we did have a Manhattan Project. And, and Tom's right, it's unbelievable. I, I get the same cards, except I only get them. Actually, I get them when I go outside of Pennsylvania, too. There are ideas uh, just, do you know we can microwave tires and produce energy? I didn't know there were microwaves. Don't do it at home. I, I, didn't know there, I didn't know there were microwaves bigger than the thing you put on your kitchen counter. But there are giant microwaves. I mean, there are so many ideas. And sure, a lot of them are crackpot ideas. But a lot of them, well, of course, but a lot of them, are smart, good ideas. You know, you don't get Jefferson Medical Center is not investing its time and resources looking at the tobacco leaf without reason. And there are so many good ideas. Would you ever thought that landfills could produce power? We have a, la a landfill in Lancaster that is generating enough electricity to power 45,000 homes. I mean, think about that. The, the, the sky is the limit on, the, on this. If we can find a way to nurture those companies glean the good ideas from the bad ideas, and, and we might be able to move a whole lot quicker, a whole lot quicker. As far as carbon sequestration and, 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 uh, and carbon capture, we should have a, a, a project on that right away, and we should have had it five years ago. So I'm not ready to accept it, but, but you're right. In the interim, 
the natural gas is a, is a possibility. I think what Boone Pickens says is absolutely right. I don't know if you're aware, we have found this, I don't know found it, but it is now feasible financially to uh, drill at something called the Marcellus Shale, which really tracks the Appalachians all the way. Um, Pennsylvania, just in the middle of all this bad economic news, uh, I allowed drilling in 75,000 acres of our state forest lands. We have more forest lands than Connecticut and Rhode Island combined, the, the entire state, so that's not very much. We got $200 million for, from uh, the drilling rights. Um, it, it, Marcella Shale may have enough natural gas to do a lot of things, but, but I wouldn't accept 2020. I mean, you can't accept. When you think big, you can't accept. You, you, you put in goals that are tough to reach, and then you reach them, and then you reach them. It's what we've always done. Let me just put a finer point on what the governor just said as a former regulator. And you know, I can cite you any number of stories. But when the government steps up and it says that there is a requirement that you're going to have to take you know, sulfur out of diesel fuel, you're going to have to get rid of CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, by a date certain, what the government is doing is creating a market opportunity. And American innovation and American ingenuity time and time again has risen to that challenge and inevitably more quickly and for at less cost than was anticipated. And so while the governor has been talking, I think, very importantly about we need to make investments, those investments, when they you know, are, are partnered with a government requirement, a regulation that we're going to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, that we're going to reduce this kind of pollutant, uh, the, the, the upside of this will be, I think, just phenomenal, more than we can possibly imagine in this room. Tom. Hey, one thing, I'd be actually willing to bet that not a single carbon capture sequestration project will be built in this country by 2020. So I think we'll come up with better solutions. I know two people working on projects to turn uh, CO2 into a building, building materials. And these are really exciting. Um, you could actually do everything you did, strip it off, and turn these into bricks and siding um, uh, and, um, uh, and concrete. Uh, and I think that is a far cheaper and far more exciting alternative than CCS. If we put a price on carbon through a cap-and-trade system, the, the kind of inventions we will see, we're going to go to an, another reporter, and then we're going to open it up to the public. Reporter? Yes. Um, oh. Uh, Alexander Duncan. I'm a reporter with Platts. This is a question for uh, Ms. Browner. What kind of role will you be having in an Obama administration, potentially a uh, climate advisor? And furthermore, you mentioned the, uh, the cap-and-trade system. At what point does uh, President Obama start pushing for that. Someone asked me recently if I was going to be a czarina in the, the energy czarina. Um, and I, I looked up the word czarina, and it's defined as wife of the czar. As far as I know, my husband is not about to become a czar. Um, <laughs> cap and trade. I'm sorry, what was the question on cap and trade? Uh, at, at what point does President Obama start pushing for for a cabin trade? Is this something first 100 days laying out the groundwork? Or is this something uh, perhaps after an, um, a larger energy package, um, perhaps the second half you know, of the year? As is, as is um, going to be the case on a lot of issues, this is something that you work with Congress on. You know, Congress um, has been engaged on this issue for some time. You've got any number of committees that are engaged. You just had a change in the leadership of the Energy and Commerce uh, Committee uh, in the House, Mr. Waxman taking over there. So I think this is something that needs to be and, and, and will be discussed uh, with the Congress in terms of you know, what is the, the, the right schedule. 
having said that, I think it's important to note that the Environmental Protection Agency under the existing Clean Air Act is sitting on some authorities. Uh, the Supreme Court decision of, of two years ago uh, gives them some authorities. Um, I think most of us who have worked on these issues for a long time would agree that it's not the, the most refined authority. You can't get to cap and trade through this authority. You know, but nevertheless, the president-elect will, will have some tools available should he decide to, to use those um, in the event that perhaps there can't be some sort of agreement reached with Congress on how to move legislation. We'll take the next question. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yes. No, you have to use a mic because we're recording. Uh, Thank you. Okay. Uh, energy is just... Oh. Ah, see, yeah. Victor Goldberg, a member of the public. Of the public. Uh, energy is just one item in a long list of consumables, like diverse foods, metals, oxygen, and the ultimate consumable is planet Earth. And Earth is a limited resource. And we are the worst parasites in this resource. Uh, so the equation of consumables on one hand has on the other hand people. And the one way to better manage the consumables is to manage the people. And the overpopulation is a problem so it would be a good idea to think in terms of how to reduce the population. And uh, it was shown that as education goes up, the, the, the question will be, what do you think? Uh, wait, wait, wait. It was, uh, one second, one second. It was, it was shown that as education goes up, population goes down, population grows, goes down. So I think that an important an, an important exportation, an important element of exportation is education. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that should be done for egoistic purposes, not necessarily for the benefit of others, because it benefits of all of us. Thank you very, very much. I don't think you're going to get any disagreement from any of us. Um, obviously, particularly educating women makes it more likely they'll have fewer children. They can be a part of the workforce. Good question. Thank it's you. It's the right, right answer. Oh, I'm sorry. In the back. Why don't you we'll work our way forward? This question is for uh, Governor Rendell. Oh, sorry, uh, Coral Davenport at Congressional Quarterly. Um, even if you won't be the new Secretary of Energy, is it possible that you would take an energy policy advisory role, possibly as part of a National Energy Council that would be in the White House? And I'm wondering if both of you can sort of talk about that idea, the idea of a creation of a National Energy Council and, and what we might see on that? Well, it's, a, it's interesting. Um, the energy and infrastructure are two issues that cut across so many federal departments that I do think you probably need some form of council to try to, to tie them together. Um, because just think about infrastructure. Infrastructure involves energy. It involves DEP. It involves, of course, transportation. It involves the military. I mean, there are so many things that are involved in it, and same thing with energy. And if there were councils, advisory councils, or things like that, like the Economic Advisor Council, would I serve on it? Yeah, I'd be honored to serve on it especially if Carol was on it. 
We have another question in the back. You can just choose someone. I can. All I see are hands. Jonathan Strong from Inside EPA. Uh, Ms. Browner, do you support elevating EPA to cabinet status? Your suggestions in Change for America were silent on that point. Well, um, under President Clinton, I was a member of the cabinet. I had the same chair at the same table as the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury. Um, I think that has been, someone's going to correct me if I'm wrong, I think that has been continued under President Bush. Um, and I certainly uh, believe it would be continued under uh, President-elect Obama. Um, you may remember in the early days, we tried to change EPA from the Environmental Protection Agency to the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, the quid pro quo for that legislation, this was uh, in the days leading up to the contract with America, was something that we found unacceptable. And so um, at one point, uh, Vice President Gore and myself actually went to the Hill and uh, told the Democratic uh, caucus that we no longer supported um, the legislation. You know, it, it, it'd be nice, it'd be very, very nice, but the most important thing is to put someone into these agencies and departments who understands the tools that are available to them and to get the job done. That's the single most important thing. And, you know, using up valuable time trying to push through legislation that changes it from an administrator to a secretary. It, it, as I said, it'd be fabulous if it could happen with a snap of your finger, but if I were the next EPA administrator, I'd want to spend my time on making sure I was using the Clean Air Act, using the Safe Drinking Water Act, using the Clean Water Act to do all of the things that need to be done and haven't been done in the last eight years. My name is Susan Buffon. I work for the Montgomery County Council, and I think that local governments have a unique role to play in this whole process. Um, we have uh, adopted a very aggressive greenhouse gas emission reduction goal in Montgomery County, and we're looking to our residential sector as the place for the easiest, least expensive uh, emission reductions. And we would like to have a loan program where a homeowner could get their um, energy audit, identify the savings that they would get in their uh, utility bill, and then be able to use those savings to pay for uh, a low-cost loan of, say, five, ten thousand dollars stretched out over maybe 15 years, and linking that uh, as a s to the property through a special assessment on their property tax. And we think that that unique role that local governments could play in linking it to the property is uh, one that would create uh, a win-win situation, particularly in creating green jobs. But all of these local communities like Berkeley and Boulder and others that are looking into this, we can't all go out and raise the money ourselves. So is there any talk among the transition team uh, or in the stimulus package of making these kinds of monies available to local taxing authorities? I'm not going to actually comment on what's under consideration within the transition team um, today, um, but outside of those conversations, you know, there's a lot of people who have looked at this and, and given a lot of, I think, very important and critical thoughts. I don't know, Tom, if you're or governor. I can say the city of Philadelphia, which certainly doesn't have the property tax base of Montgomery County, Maryland, we had a program like this. Uh, we come in and do the energy assessment, and then we would loan or grant, depending on the family's uh, financial situation. If Philadelphia could afford it, Montgomery County should be able to afford it. Do you want to comment on Montgomery County as a resident? No, <laughs> yeah, raise Tom's taxes, <laughs> please. Why don't we come, where's the gentleman with the, come up here. Yeah, that's fine. 
As I said, all yeah. I see are hands. Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Annabelle Fisher. I am a taxpayer. First, I need to say, Thomas Friedman, you're the best because he tells us what it is and the truth, whether no matter what's your political affiliation. The question I have, I don't know, I, I know this would be for Governor Rendell and, and Mr. Friedman and Bruno, has to do with ethanol transloading. You mentioned that. Uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, where I live, no, I don't live in Old Town. I'm a renter. I don't have a mortgage other than the West End. There is an ethanol transloading facility located near a very high-end condo neighborhood. There is also one in Baltimore, where I am from. There is a bill in front of Congress as a result of this ethanol transloading site in, in Alexandria trying to limit or change the location for ethanol transloading. Do you, are you looking at ethanol transloading as a means of cutting down on natural gas, ethanol transloading? It's combustible. It's, they, take it, they take the ethanol, they transfer it from the trains into the, from the trains into trucks, they transfer that to a location well, in, in Virginia, in Chantilly. But it's combustible. It could blow up. It's like, it's gas that uh, that's transloaded um, onto a train that's shipped to whatever. Are You mentioned ethanol transloading. That's why I'm asking you, Governor Rendell, on either one comment. Are you looking at this as a way of reducing energy? Um, I know in, in Alexandria, Virginia, paving, which uh, makes asphalt wants to get more natural gas involved in asphalt making. So is ethanol transloading or asphalt something you all want to look at in terms of the future? And I agree, it's not going to happen today and maybe in 20, 30 years when I'm under the daisies. So thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, we have developed, in, uh, not we, but the private uh, sector in, in Pennsylvania have found a way to, to mix uh, diesel uh, biodiesel and regular diesel gas uh, by computer and and we, we don't have to splash load it um, you, you know ethanol plants uh, siting is is a problem like siting anything you know uh, uh, you all heard of NIMBY I had a person who worked for me who coined the phrase banana which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody um, and we have problems there's no question because you know any, you know, the uh, LCN, uh, I mean, uh, not LCN, the, the um, liquid natural gas, you have to bring it into the Boston Harbor. Nobody in their right mind would, would try to do that in, in today's uh, atmosphere if you were starting over anew. But it's a question of, you know, you have to cite. There are a lot of things that you have to cite. And you have to cite it. You have to control it. You can do it by zoning. You can do it a lot of different ways. There are going to be some difficult siting issues as right. we try and, I mean, whether it's bringing, you know, transmission lines to where the wind is generated, um, you know, they're, 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 that is not going to be a simple issue. Okay, um, Tom, did you want to comment on that? No. Up here, where's, I don't know where the mic is now. Over here. Thank you. Uh, Tracy Watson, USA Today from Ms. Browner. As someone who's been in Washington a long time, how do you game out the chances that Congress will approve a big slug of alternative energy money in the uh, stimulus bill? Will they really be happy to devote money to alternative energy as opposed to the traditional uh, roads and bridges kinds of projects? Um, you know, I've been up on the Hill um, in the last couple of, of weeks, and uh, the sense I get is that there is tremendous interest in a green portion of the stimulus, and, and I'm encouraged. I see the governor shaking his head. Uh, the president-elect will be with the governors tomorrow in Philadelphia 
and I'm sure this will be an important part of, of their agenda. Uh, but, you know, every indication I am getting on the Hill, certainly the president-elect is there. I mean, he has talked repeatedly about you know, the need for green investments, a green recovery. And so I think it's just a question of how big the stimulus turns out to be and then how you sort of divvy that up uh, within the various um, areas that are important. During the campaign, he talked about $15 billion a year for 10 years. Well, $15 billion in this package is not a, you know, not a huge amount of the, not a huge percentage of the package. And I think they'll be very receptive to that. And that, that $15 billion was actually in the research and development arena. And right. so you could get a down payment on that, but also looking at some of the areas, you know, we, we've talked about different ideas here today, where you actually can sort of meet the requirements of a stimulus, um, which means you have to actually create jobs, you know, in the near term. It has to, you know, be measurable um, benefits, whether it's weatherization. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ideas that have been talked about broadly um, that I think will have a lot of interest both from the governors and on the Hill. Okay, we're going to take one last question, and then, oh, God, right here. <laughs> it's very tough. Well, she sat on the floor, so at least she should get a question. Thank you. Well, it seems to me if you're going to do something big, you have to be successful at, at animating the imagination of many, many, many small players. That in addition to the bully pulpit and new initiatives, Energy Council, there's going to be a challenge of getting information to entrepreneurs, local government leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, locally. Is anybody talking about how to do that? And two, just relate to that, it seems to me a lot of this is going to end up at the state level. That And has any state got what you could characterize as a comprehensive, sustainable economic development strategy? Uh, sorry, <laughs> Ann Heald, um, Forum for Leadership, Innovation, and Sustainable Economy. I'll, I'll make a brief answer, and then um, one of the, the, I think, really uh, amazing things about the, the Obama campaign and now the, the, the transition is the commitment to really engage the American people. And um, I don't usually go around giving out website addresses, but I would really encourage people to go to change.gov. I mean, already we're taking questions from people, we're taking ideas from people, and really trying to create the opportunity for a kind of dialogue, uh, you know, sort of participatory democracy, small d democracy in this country with, you know, whether it be at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, you know, at the private level, you know, people sharing ideas um, and, and learning uh, from each other. And so I would, we, the first uh, thing we put up on there was about um, actually energy um, issues, so I would recommend that to you. But you, you make an excellent point, and one of the things we're going to say to the president-elect tomorrow is we're glad he's come here to hear our concerns, and he said that's why he wanted to meet with us. But we want to do more than just voice our concerns. We want to offer our help, and I think our help comes in many ways in how to implement this plan, uh, number one, but it also comes in how to sell it to the American people. And I think it's very important because governors are out there on the front line. Hopefully the president will get out and sell and sell and sell, and I think he's going to be very good at that. But governors can be enormously helpful in, in developing that idea, and there's no question about it. And you can sell ideas by translating them into sort of workable bites that, 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 your, that your folks understand. You know, Senator Obama got criticized during the campaign talking about conservation when he said we should all get our air pressure checked in our tires. Well, in fact, when Katrina hit, my citizens, I'm not a big guy for security and it drives the state police crazy, but I walk a lot of places not to save gas. I just like to walk. Um, and citizens would literally come up to me and grab me by the, by the jacket and say, 
you've got to do something about these gas prices. Because remember, after Katrina, we went up to $3 for the first time. And they said, suspend the gas, state gas tax for the rest of the year. And I'd say to them as calmly as I could, I'd say, well, that will save you, if you're the average driver, $45. It will cost us $500 to $600 million that we desperately need to build better and safer roads, to fix up our roads, our bridges, etc. And I said, by the way, I can save you $45 right now. Just listen to me for two seconds. One, go check your tire pressure. Two, clean out your car's filter and make sure your car's filter is working pro properly. And three, and I'm a bad guy to talk about this because the newspapers clocked us once again, 100 miles an hour. <laughs> but I said, next time you're on the highway, don't drive 75 miles, even if you can get away with it. Drive 60. You'll get there seven minutes later. And those three things, if you practice them over the next four months, will save you a whole lot more than $45. And I never got a citizen who bit back. They would say, is that right? Well, maybe I should try those things. You can do it. You can do it. And it, it's something that has to become a national imperative. It has to become a national imperative. We have to be get to the point where you know, citizens are almost saying to th their neighbor, get rid of that Hummer. That's a disgrace, you know? We ought to, you no, know, seriously, we all ought to buy into this because it is the nation's future. You know, the, Tom is not just writing a, a, a book to sell books. That, that's correct. It is the nation's future. It's our best way. American innovation can still get this done, I believe, better than anybody else in the world. If we have the right type of leadership, we'll get this done. It'll spur our economy. It'll be great for our environment. It'll be wonderful to leave it for our kids. It's just a great thing that can do so much. But we all have to buy into it. We all have to be soldiers in this war. And it, obviously, governors do and senators do. And, but so do newspaper people and the public and, and everybody else. I mean, let's get it going. And we've wasted eight years for sure. We should have been doing this a long time ago. And, and I believe we can get it done. So, Tom, what if you had the chance to visit with the president-elect? What are the three things you would tell him to do? Well, I've said it all in my column. You know, uh, one, unfortunately, is one we probably can't do right now, and that is uh, we have to have a price signal. Uh, price really matters. At uh, $4 a gallon gasoline, people change their behavior. And without a price signal, either a gasoline tax, uh, cap-and-trade, or carbon tax, um, our chances of getting uh, the kind of green revolution we need at the speed, scope, and scale we need is really de minimis. Um, you'll get a lot of people doing this and that, and, and it'll make the, you know, United Sky Miles magazine. And, but um, uh, but it's, a, it's a hobby. And um, I like hobbies. I used to build model airplanes. I don't try to change the climate as a hobby. And so, you know, I think that would really be, you know, one, two, and three, I think, that without a price signal, uh, and, and how he can sell that, I, I think, is really, really vital. But I, I wanted to take a crack also at, at your question, because I think it's very important if I get asked this. I have two daughters you know, uh, in their 20s, and I get asked this at a lot of college campuses. Young people really want to get involved. And I think more than ever with uh, President Obama, they're, they're going to want to get involved. And um, uh, I have a chapter in my book called, um, If It Isn't Boring, It Isn't Green. You know, and I'm a really big believer, if it isn't boring, it isn't green. Um, we need uh, an eco-superstar like Al Gore because he can go globally and um, really draw attention to this issue. And he's done it, I think, heroically. Um, but not everyone can be an eco-superstar and win an Academy Award or a Nobel Prize or, or, or an Emmy. And um, uh, we need people 
who know the rules. You know, and I just constantly try to remind young people that uh, ExxonMobil, they don't have a Facebook page. They're just in your face. <laughs> and ExxonMobil, they don't have a chat room. They're in the cloakroom where the rules get written. And if you are not in the cloakroom where the rules get written, you are nowhere. So I personally, I'm off Earth Day. I've had enough Earth Day concerts. I've had enough consciousness raising. I don't need people in my chat room. I don't have a Facebook page. I want to be in people's face, in the cloakroom, where the rules get written. You change one degree of SEER standards on air conditioner regulations in this country, and you will do more to affect global warming, okay, than, you know, uh, than a thousand Earth Day concerts on seven continents simultaneously that all were, you know, offset by carbon emissions, blah, 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 okay. You change the regulations around soda pop machines around America, you will be changing the world. So if it isn't boring, it isn't green. Learn the rules, get in the cloakroom, and get in somebody's face, get out of Facebook. That's where it sort of end on a upbeat note. That's where I think President Obama has a tremendous opportunity, because he has a list to end all lists. He has a list to end all lists, and he ought to be using that list. Forget about raising money. He doesn't have to raise another dime. If he does a good job, he'll get elected overwhelmingly. He ought to use that list to get in the cloakroom, to get in the cloakroom like the American public has never done before. That list is as powerful as all the contributions in the world if they stay motivated. To me, that's the, that's the crucial part of what's... We're going to have to fight. So, so what I'm hearing is um, rather than drill, baby, drill, it's regulate, baby, regulate. <laughs> Innovate, baby. Innovate. <laughs> um, let me thank um, the governor and Tom Friedman for joining us all. And thank you all for being a part of today. Thank you.